Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is someone who shares a similar life experience to me in being a person who has listened to a lot of other people's traumas, sometimes horrific life-changing traumas and stories that can make you question the nature of humanity itself. Hugh Kinsella Cunningham is a British photographer and photojournalist. He has covered conflict and health and social issues for the likes of the Sunday Times magazine, The Guardian and National Geographic. He works on assignment for organisations including Save the Children and the United Nations and his work has been recognised by Amnesty International and the Sony World Photography Awards. I came across him through an episode he did with my friend and friend of the pod Jake Camrahan on his podcast Popular Front where he talked about the conflict currently going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is a country which has been synonymous with civil war and intense and brutal conflict for as long as I can remember. Hugh has worked in the country for four years and is an expert in the geopolitical landscape and the reality of what is going on there. In this episode, we discuss his route into photography and photojournalism, why he made the choice to move to the DRC and cover this at times appalling conflict where war crimes have been committed, like using rape as a weapon of war, the use of child soldiers and horrific sexual abuse of women and young boys. We provide an informative look at the history of the country and the context of the conflicts going on right now what he has witnessed personally and the mental stress of doing his job of reporting on the war and hearing these heartbreaking and horrific stories from its victims. For Hugh's mental health, we discuss the isolation and loneliness that comes with travelling around the world for his work, not being able to vent to his friends and family about his work because of just how detached and abstract it is from their lives and the anxiety he can feel before starting a particular story and the tasks he will need to do to secure it. So this is how my check-in with the brilliant Hugh Kinsella Cunningham went. Hugh, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for taking the time to let me check in with you. After I heard your chat with Jake, I pretty much knew instantly I had to try and get you on. And you are an expert on a country which I've wanted to educate myself on for a long time. It's the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we'll talk about it later on in the pod. But first off, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm feeling absolutely wonderful. I'm on holiday at the moment, so everything is moving lovely and slowly. Just being very boring and gardening quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) This is my little thing. It's always good self-care tools, mate. It's always good self-care. I'm really excited for this pod, mate, and I know you'll provide some really expert analysis for my listeners and maybe a really educational and informative perspective on a lot of things too. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, yeah, of course. After you. You work as a photographer and photojournalist, mate. So let's start the pod by talking about this journey. So tell the listeners and me, first off, how and why you got into it and what inspired you to begin this journey. 
Yeah, for me, it was always about telling stories or whatever. I've never been very interested in like normal photography or whatever. I mean, I once was told that, you know, you either want to make a living from photography or you want to tell stories. It's not the same thing. You know, and when I was in uni, I had a part-time job as like the nightclub photographer in a terrible, (laughs) terrible, terrible little nightclub that also sold roast dinners on weekends. And I was just like, this isn't for me, like, I'm not interested in photography, I'm not interested in this, I'm interested in stories. And I didn't realise that photojournalism existed until like a certain, ex- it was, you know, fantastic luck, an exhibition I saw of a guy's work called Tim Heverington, who's passed away now, but, you know, beautiful images of like American soldiers in Afghanistan and like daily life you know, with the conflict sort of in the background. But I didn't, I saw this and there was videos and photos in the show and I was just blown away and I thought, you know what, I want to do this. And then it took a few years of like just temp jobs, receptionist, like call centre guy on the phone ordering your taxi for you, doing that sort of stuff, saving up a bit. And I was like, I want to travel. I want to try my hand at this. I flew to the Congo once about five years ago. And I photographed a few little things while I was there, just for, I was there for like two or three weeks. And I photographed a story about the legacy of Muhammad Ali there, because that's what I first went to shoot. That's what I was the, interested in. Is that the Rumble in the Jungle? Yeah. Or is back that in the, the Thura Manila? The Rumble in the Jungle. So back in yeah. the 70s, I think, Muhammad Ali was flown to Kinshasa in Congo to fight, and he stayed in a jungle palace, and he, it was just this huge moment in time. <laughs> It's just bonkers yeah, when you think about it now, isn't it? <laughs> it's absolute insanity. And then you can go to the stadium where he put on his performance, where they turned it into this huge circus, you know, local musician. And you can see this decaying stadium and there's a little boxing club in there at the moment. And I did a little story about that. And those pictures ended up being published on like the BBC and the Guardian. I did another thing about like the girls specifically at that boxing club. And, you know, when I came home, I was like, you know, that seems to have not gone terribly, you know. Let's try it again. So another sort of year or so of counting my coins and everything, saving up and like just making sure I had, you know, a bit of cash. I went again and I've been staying longer and longer. And for the last two and a half years, three years now, maybe two and a half, I've been there more or less permanently. And since the end of the pandemic, actually, so well, not the end, since the end of the first lockdown bit of the pandemic, like August 2020, I've basically, I've barely stepped away. Before we talk about the DRC in more depth in your work there, you told me you had this desire to become a conflict journalist to prove to yourself that you could go out and capture the stories that you were getting inspiration from. So were you proving others wrong or were you proving yourself right? Yeah, it's difficult to sort of talk about this stuff because obviously, you know, you're doing a job that sort of relies on you sort of having empathy and an altruistic approach to things. But yeah, you'd be talking complete nonsense if you said you weren't also trying to do this kind of work for yourself, just to prove to yourself that you're able to work in very tough conditions, you're able to work with minimal support and do this kind of stuff off your own back. And it has been fantastic for me as a sort of a confidence builder and figuring out that, you know, I can walk into places that scary scary places and come away with like amazing work and that's something that I can do and very few other people can do you know conflict journalism whatever it's a it's quite a sort of a small niche profession I mean back in the day when you speak to older journalists it seems absolutely insane all these newspapers and magazines 
had huge budgets, you know, you people would like get bags of expenses, go wherever you want across the world, you know, even as, you know, recent, like, you know, Marie Colvin, she was the Sunday Times foreign correspondent. She's famously the one who's walked around with an eye patch. One of her eyes was lost in a grenade attack in Sri Lanka. You know, even as short ago as like, you know, over a decade ago, this was still like, you know, a huge profession for people, but now it's kind of really falling by the wayside. Were there any conflict journalists that you looked to for inspiration when you were starting out or maybe leaned on for advice? So from the top of my head, I can think of the likes of Jeremy Bowen or I can think of the likes of Fergal Keane from the BBC, but I'm sure there are myriad others which don't always get the spotlight either that you probably know as well. Honestly, in terms of like immediate inspiration, when I was starting out, there was a couple of photographers that gave me advice, but I was mostly just completely like wandering around figuring this out on my own. The Fergal Keane <laughs> from the BBC, I once walked into a church in Congo and I was like there'd been a shooting there and I was like I'd like to speak to someone and this is when I was just starting out so I wasn't working for anyone it was I was just like and I showed this priest this political protesting priest some photos on my phone for the BBC I'd done and he was like but we've already just spoken to the BBC Fogel Keen was just here <laughs> like, okay this is just me against like this huge I can't keep up but no right now I am I'm lucky enough that I have a few editors and stuff that I can you know share my work with and who support me and it's a very sort of independent mm. journey you have to make because because you're you're sort of running a business really in terms of making it work and getting it's fantastic getting going to get out and make creative work and doing this kind of stuff but you're running a business for yourself and no one's going to really help you with that completely you know you have to figure out how to connect the dots make the you know get the commissions and everything make the stories mostly by yourself and then present what you want to do and what you're trying to do as like a finished package to organizations and editors for them to pick up you know no one in the industry sort of like just really lifts you up it's quite tough like that i want to now talk about the main reason we're chatting today hugh and it's the work you've done in the drc for the last four to five years so first of all for my listeners give them a bit of context about the country itself when it gained independence mm. why the drc and congo are separate countries and the conflicts which have taken place there for the last say 20 years mm. there's two congos there's congo with the capital city brazzaville and then just over the river to the south there's congo kinshasa democratic republic of congo which is even less democratic than the other one um and then <laughs> the ironically named yeah yeah it's always, always the way with if you have that magic word in a country's name here yep. <laughs> um and then yeah so since you know it was a belgian colony back in the day and famously that was one of the worst atrocities committed in already a very sort of dark age you know there was a belgian king who ran it as his personal kingdom you know there was sort of widespread murder and torture of Congolese people and since independence the country has never ever found its feet really you've just had decades of dictatorship and conflicts going off the east of the country at the moment is the main hotspot but then you know in years past it's been all over the country is absolutely huge it's the size of like western Europe it's absolutely gigantic you can get on a plane in one bit fly two hours across and then another two hours down, two hours north, you know, it's absolutely gigantic. It's, it's huge and it's so varied as well. But for the last decades, there's been endless conflicts. Quite a lot of them have been absolutely just incredibly destructive. The Second Congo War is known as Africa's World War. I don't know the exact figure, but millions dead. 
in this conflict and the aftershocks are still being felt now there was obviously the rwandan genocide which happened just across the border from east congo again huge violence and that is all you know all these nations in the area implicated in that so after the genocide you had the perpetrators of this genocide the inter haramwe which was sort of a rough term for like the hutu militias who were sort of responsible for the majority of the bloodshed and the genocide they fled across to eastern Congo when the balance of power turned and the genocide and the Tutsi RPF started winning and they started pushing the back and committing atrocities of their own. The perpetrators of the genocide ended up in East Congo, you know, perpetrating violence against Congolese civilians and then, you know, just web of violence, different provinces, hundreds of different armed groups, different motives. So in that context right now, you have huge humanitarian disasters going on consistent waves of just incredible chaos and bloodshed some conventional fighting but like guerrilla warfare and what i cover quite a lot is the effects of these conflicts on civilians and that's not just like the obvious stuff like you know fleeing from attacks while there's something going on in the distance that's not just you know injuries wounds there's other things people don't really sort of consider which is hunger is the is actually the main one a rebel attack sort of displaces a community that community no longer has access to their life their businesses their shops their farms their their fields so hunger is a huge part of conflict in congo i, I haven't got the exact figures to hand but it's millions of people are sort of what's classed as food insecure at the moment which is when there's no reliable access to nutritious food so last year i was working a lot on assignments about hunger about famine and again, this is sort of it's maybe in the news a bit more now that, you know, the war in Ukraine has affected grain shipments across the world because, you know, this, you know, East Ukraine and Russia, you know, these are sort of huge agricultural producing areas and quite a lot of that grain will end up getting shipped to Africa and especially lower income countries where food production is tenuous. That also has been in the news recently. From my understanding and reading about the country, the DRC is one which is renowned for having vast mineral wealth and also from maybe perhaps nature documentaries and stuff, it's also a country which is known to have one of the few sanctuaries for gorillas and animals like that. So what about the country has made it rife for these warring factions? Is it the history of that bloodshed or is it these battles over minerals as well? Well, this is really interesting as well because I've been to sort of these mines in despair and there's two elements to the mineral stuff. There's like, you know, small mines of like gold and coltan, you know, this that people say the minerals in your phone happens in the east and then further down. So that's all that's quite a lot of that is run by armed groups and everything run by the state, the military. Then you go further south down to the border of Zambia where they mine cobalt and copper. And that's not what people think of as like conflict minerals at all. That's Mm. huge industrial companies from Switzerland, from China running these gigantic mining concessions for these minerals which are going to be you know essential for like you know the electric future you know your your cars your superconductors these sort of things i've been to like all of these places and just by and large they're all awful and it's a very different context but it's at the moment the conflict isn't really hinging on like minerals and stuff like this it's been going on so long it just perpetuates itself the rebels and the commanders the state forces Everyone is just too entrenched in this. They have no incentive to end the conflict. It's just the way of the world. Huge, you know, international presence, 
like NGOs and United Nations mean so much money comes into the country because of this conflict. It's now sort of almost stuck. And what you will also have as a huge reason why, you know, conflicts are never resolved is the sort of the failure of the state. There is no alternative for rebels, for armed groups. There's no alternative, nothing for them to turn back to. If you're an armed group and you say, okay, that's it, we've had enough fighting, we're going to surrender our weapons, we're going to come out of the bush and, you know, whatever. if you join the program of the reintegration and the disarmament run by the UN and the state, nothing comes of it. They don't have any money, the conditions are awful, you know, combatants will end up staying in like these tent cities for ages and given no chance to sort of be rehabilitated, no chance of other work, no chance of jobs. So they will just end up going back to the bush, continuing their struggles. And then you have other other conflicts going on, which are absolutely unfixable at the moment. You have the Islamic State has a presence in eastern Congo. There's a Ugandan rebel group called the ADF active in one part of the Congo. And originally they had political motives. But slowly over time, jihadism has crept into that to the extent they're now releasing like allegiance pledges to Islamic State. They release propaganda videos after attacks of them beheading Congolese army soldiers they've captured. That's absolutely insane covering that conflict. And then further down, you have the, you know, the Rwandan army is supporting another rebel group called the M23. So there's all there's just too much to keep track of. And too many, mess. Yeah, yeah, there's too many things, there's too many sort of conflicts to really like actually explain the whole thing. But perhaps that gives a little idea. Well, just expanding on that, we've seen in the past Hollywood films capture, say, the underworld of diamonds in Sierra Leone, like Blood Diamond. So why has the DRC not been given as much mainstream press coverage? Is it because, in a very sad way, the world has become used to seeing it? and seeing the country in a state of perpetual conflict. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, what strikes me is, you know, so the conflict in Ukraine is, is on another level in terms of, like, brutality. You've got all these horrific modern weapons, what they're capable of doing to, like, people and towns and, you know, what we've seen happen to these Ukrainian cities. It's on another level. But there are areas in Congo that have had similar things happen to them. You know, I, I was driving through a town end of last year that had been razed to the ground. There was a rebel group called Kodeko that had kicked civilians out of a huge town called Kobu. And, you know, instead of, you know, rooting them out, the Congolese army had just flattened this town with helicopter gunships and artillery and stuff. And I've seen scenes in Congo that look like the same as what's happening in Ukraine. You know, civilian trauma and civilian displacements look the same the world over. So this is really interesting to see all this renewed focus on Ukraine, things that are sort of consistently happening here. And I completely understand that because, you know, this has been happening decades in Congo. News editors, you know, it, have been pushing this. The public has been aware of it. Every so often you get like a new celebrity that's really pushing. But Ben Affleck was into Congo for a while. Then Leonardo DiCaprio pushing it into sort of like the, the mainstream Western consciousness but yeah it's very hard to get lots of media coverage in congo at the moment like you mentioned earlier in the pod mate the civil wars in the drc that have ravaged the country have often been brutal from both sides atrocities and war crimes are committed from both sides so what has been the reality of this for your work and working with people in the drc what stories have you heard and i can imagine you have to be very careful as well because you don't want to just portray them as in air quotes, just another victim of war. How do you fully humanise their life too and what they've gone through? Yeah, so quite often on commissions and assignments, I'm meeting people and hearing really awful stories that just 
you know, of war crimes, of atrocities. There's one conflict in particular in the northeast of the country that's really vicious at the moment. And you hear stories of people separated from their families who have fled in different directions. Met kids have said they've seen like bodies floating down rivers who've been attacked by people who've lost like a loved one in front of their eyes. And I was just in a hospital a month and a half ago and I met a young girl. She's in like early 20s and her mum's dead. So now she's got to raise her two siblings by herself, her two sort of young siblings. And one of them had a machete wound on her ear. There are absolutely like awful testimonies that I listen to and try and put into story form. And yeah, it's very hard because some of these scenes, there's no way about it. They are like absolutely depressing. You're in these displacement camps you're in these war-torn areas and how do i make this relatable how do i make this about the people rather than just this dire circumstance and something i did last year that i was really proud of was a project i did for save the children where i used like little flowers and colorful things with the camera to kind of just make these very magic realism portraits of kids suffering through the conflict very colorful images bright primary colors and that project was actually very successful. It ended up on the BBC, on TV and on the website. And people really reacted well to that, hearing like these testimonies of kids through conflict, but just being presented with them as like beautiful images of normal kids with the quotes. It was a great way of like getting people to engage with this. As if like, imagine this is just, you know, someone you knew, this is your sister or your brother or son or whatever, who was telling you this rather than like a far away community in some place you can't understand or... It was just like, you know, if this is another community, this is how, you know, how would you react if your family was experiencing this? That seemed to be a really good project. Other than that, wherever it's possible, like I, I have my ways of just making good connections and making sure I get a good relation with people before I take pictures. There was a recent displacement a couple of months ago. I went to take some more pictures to save the children. There's a huge displacement site. And instead of just wandering around everywhere, annoying people were just taking pictures of everything. I just went back to one little building of this displacement site every day just to keep photographing and hanging out with the few families that were living there. So I got pictures. Then people relax around you as a visitor, especially like a foreign visitor. And people loosen up a bit. They, you know, they see you a lot. You start laughing, playing with the kids, you know, whatever, just trying to break the ice a bit. And as a result of that, I like to think I get really quite strong family pictures. I, I love taking pictures of like mothers and families interacting and playing, you know, like in the evening as well. I love taking pictures in the evening at displacement sites because in the evening everything stops and everyone starts cooking, you know, and you get these people cook outside. It's just this time when it means that you've survived another day at these places because people displaced by conflict it's an awful life you have to spend your days foraging for food you have to spend your days foraging for charcoal to cook that food if you're walking away from these camps you know sexual violence is incredibly widespread you know kidnapping the rebels who've caused this conflict are not far away there's all sorts of risks but so in the evening when people sit down to cook and relax you know i i, I think i often get my strongest pictures then as part of your work as well really horrifically and tragically a lot of people you've interviewed have been sexual abuse survivors from soldiers who've used rape as a weapon of war and this isn't just women this is young boys this is child soldiers as well and I guess the best mainstream representation of this I can remember is a very dark film directed by Kari Fukunaga called Beast of No Nation which portrayed Idris Elba as this commandant over a group of child soldiers so what mental health impact 
does this obviously have on them? And what does it have on you when you interview these people about these horrific stories of abuse? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, sort of meeting and photographing. You know, what the rebel groups do, there's two girls are abducted and they're forced to sort of even marry combatants, which, you know, that doesn't mean anything. It's, it's abduction, it's rape. You know, these are young women. You know, the word marriage is it, it's a complete sort of... It shouldn't really be used in these circumstances, I don't think. But anyway, they're forced to marry combatants and they're forced to sort of serve the armed group, you know, like fetch water, fetch food. And obviously, yeah, you know, young children, boys are also abducted. They're forced to fight. They're forced to carry ammunition. God knows what else. And so I, I, I like to think every, I do everything sort of properly, you know, and if you go out with an NGO, like Save the Children, and you go and photograph former child soldiers or whatever, you know, you're with child protection, like a specialist or something. I have no idea how some of these kids are even still standing, to be honest, after hearing this stuff. So you don't want to sort of push too hard in interviews to figure out like exactly what it is, you know, you did. And it, if someone's happy to share, that's that's fantastic. You know, you, you always interview these people with like, you know, the guardian parent, if any, surviving present. And the child soldiers, yes, but for me, the, the girls, I think, are the ones who will truly never quite recover from these experiences. You know, it, it's just so otherworldly, this, this sort of lack of power and like, whatever else that happens to them and and again i can't really claim it's like it's too bad for me because obviously i'm in like privileged position and it's awful listening to these stories and just knowing that like well whatever happens whatever change may happen in the future it's too late this has already happened to you we can't fix that the only solution to this stuff is just sort of long-term care for these victims afterwards you know like just making sure that if a child soldier is released from their like group if they have family remaining just like a nice close-knit environment just so they have support and just so they have you know like a, a trajectory something to aim towards because quite often like aimless young men are the ones who join these armed groups you know not always necessarily out of abduction sometimes out of choice sometimes you know this is just something young boys in my community do i, I will go and do this so yeah it's super super interesting as well and then some you know some of the stories are absolutely you know the I think I mentioned earlier there's one group who, are, who have pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. I was interviewing a woman about two and a half months ago who, who was abducted by them for a bit. And she said, like, on their first day when they were led off into the bush, I think it was a sort of a show of power, probably just making the power dynamic clear that they were all forced to watch while they beheaded one of the male captives. And then these rebel guys sort of tossed their head around and like threw it at the women and said, oh, you have to carry this now. Just, you know, these acts being perpetrated that you it's just absolutely mind bogglingly awful and understand, you know, understanding how people deal with this on, on such a regular basis in these regions is really hard. Like, I, And I'm not sure if it's resilience or I'm not sure if it's just fatigue, but people really do have a, a incredible resilience to keep on going when this stuff is just happening down the road. You've interviewed people who have seen the very worst of humanity. So has it made you question your view of humanity? Honestly, I don't think I'm that jaded. I think perhaps for me, what it, what it is, it just reinforces that you're never as far away from these type of things as you'd like to be. You know, if you give people the opportunity there'll always be those amongst you who have this in their nature and this can be let out so you know the importance of like strong communities and the importance of functioning society that's something that seems that seems very important to me 
I think also as well, just I think there's a huge gender thing as well, because these displacement camps and these atrocities, by and large, it is women and children who suffer the most. I've met countless families where recently at this one displacement site, lots of, there was lots of women and children at this camp, but there was no men at this displacement camp at all. And we started asking people, like, where, where's, your, where's your husband? Where's your, where's your brother? Whatever. They said, oh, they just disappeared after the attack. So when family and community breaks down, that's when people become more vulnerable. It can be very shocking, but... I think also with, you know, U- Ukraine as well, it's, you know, similar sort of things have occurred. Like if a, if an armed force, if, an, if a community has suffered like a sort of a moral or social failure, then you can get crimes against humanity. When those sort of boundaries and morality you take for granted have been lost, then anything becomes possible. Yeah, it's, it's very shocking. You've also had several awards and recognition for your work capturing what's going on in the DRC right now. So given all that you've gone through and given all the people that you've spoken to, do you place much value in them when you receive them? And also, do you think without them, in a way, a lot of the voices of these people would simply become voiceless or more voiceless? <laughs> yeah, that is a weird one. It's like altruism versus, you know, you're in this yourself, fella, aren't you? It's fantastic to have people recognise your work mostly because it also makes it easier to get more work in the future. You know, I was one of the biggest disappointments of my life was when I got into an exhibition at Somerset House in London, one of my most favourite venues ever. And it was cancelled because of COVID. That was like sort of March, like February 2020, I think. And it's like, ah, fuck. But (laughs) other than, you know, other than that. But and again, it's like, well, what's the ethics of you getting recognition for work that's taking someone else's story and presenting it? But again, as long as, again, as you sort of remember, it's not about me. It's about this work. And it's about trying to present this to as many people as possible. Then I think generally that's a positive thing. And I'm hoping at the moment, again, with Ukraine sort of creating this big shock to the system, that people are going to start recognising the importance of foreign correspondence again and realising that journalism, you know, it needs to be supported and it needs to be paid for, whether from local journalists working in hotspots across the world, from people that give a new perspective by flying to these places, people that... And I like to think I, in Congo, have this sort of middle ground position where it's like I'm not a local journalist, Never will be, but I've been there for long enough to give maybe slightly more interesting view on things that people have just flown mm. in. So, you know, for instance, like what we've just been working on for National Geographic for a couple of months was a story about the women's peace movement in Congo. It's a story I'm really excited to share, hopefully, soon when it comes out. And this is a story we've been shadowing. Like, this is something I'm really excited about, actually, people making a positive change. Women's peace activists in these sort of four different conflicts we were following. You know, people that a uh, group of lawyers, a group of women lawyers in one city who pay for victims of sexual violence in conflict zones to have their cases actually pushed to court and tr- get the cases tried. That's a fantastic initiative. We went with one lady when she took a group of displaced women to meet the army general in charge of operations and sort of berate him that he wasn't doing enough to protect civilians. You know, these are incredibly brave people. We were hanging out with one lady called Matilde who goes into, she drives into rural areas in the middle of nowhere and she teaches rural communities and rural women about human rights law and tells you, you know, these five laws here and this law here means that you are protected from this kind of behaviour. And if this happens to you, you need to report, you know, getting sort of human rights awareness 
Anyways, but these kind of stories that are sort of slowly unveiling themselves the more time I spend there. And again, in displacement zones, you'll see that people come in, they'll just do a couple of shots of, you know, miserable looking conditions, miserable families. But actually, if you go a little bit deeper, there's so much more going on. And that's how I think you can really find these kind of positive, interesting angles. So again, hopefully with Ukraine, there's a bit of a shift towards realising the importance of journalism, rediscovering that your money is in the same way that, you know, you'll you'll happily spend whatever it is per month for Netflix, you know, add a subscription to like, you know, journalism, a news outlet to that as well. You know, it's hopefully something that will keep on, you know, because I think people are really, you know, the Ukraine conflict has got huge interest across the world you know like every news organization has been out there and people have remembered that the world is not as cozy as it seems from your position in western europe and to keeping on track of these conflicts who's doing what i think a big thing as well is visibility and accountability like i've taken some photo one photo i absolutely love in congo is i was in this rural village I was just wandering around a bit bored having a ciggy because the thing I was supposed to photograph wasn't particularly interesting. And there's this wedding procession like runs down the road. So I like go off and photograph them down this muddy road with hills in the background, you know, woman, beautiful girl and like full white wedding dress, groom in his suit, everyone laughing and smiling. And I take pictures of this, really happy with this photo. And then later I do my research about the town. And I figure actually they're only a few hundred meters away from a memorial where 500 people were killed in a single massacre about 20 years beforehand but it's just like growing and recovering from conflict you know there needs to be accountability and justice and visibility is key to that if you don't know things have occurred then there will never be justice for them and then there'll never be sort of hopefully healing and you know a stronger community years down the line let's reflect then on this journey so first of all what has been your proudest achievement or best shot along this journey Hugh and doing it for as long as you have being in the DRC and being in other places what has the country and what has this wider journey taught you about yourself as well favorite photo honest favorite photo is perhaps the um I don't know it depends what mood I I have my favorite conflict pictures where I've taken like I've been with the Congolese army hanging out in the jungle walking through this sort of like Vietnam style jungle on patrol and stuff I'm super happy seen a few. super yeah. happy with those pictures in terms of what they mean to me but I don't know I think my colorful pictures of children in conflict sort of probably mean the mean the most to me in terms of like what they achieved and you know that's what I set out to do which was like show people expose this stuff to a big audience and that is mostly only possible working for like big organizations and it's like yeah this is what's happening and you know hopefully creating a platform to talk about things you know lobby for change these kind of stuff for me honestly i don't know i've come away from it having built like a career and sort of created an ability to really tell people stories i hope and it's made me a lot more i don't know sort of in tune with empathy and i hope that's something i can carry on with at my work whether i keep on with this or something else in the future yeah i think sort of an understanding and empathy is 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 possibly the best thing that i've got from taking up photography we talked all about hugh the photojournalist the photographer i want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey hugh so i ask all my special guests this question first you can answer it however way you want walk me through your early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Hugh we meet here? <laughs> oh, God. Mental health experience. Honestly, I feel like I am I try to keep sort of a, a happy-go-lucky go perspective on things, try and stay very positive about things. I can't say that 
early life of my childhood predicted I'd be sort of doing this sort of stuff for work and sort of turning my life into this kind of sort of, you know, at the moment my life is sort of dedicated to the work, to be honest. It's not the sort of thing you can just easily walk into. I'm not sure. I don't think I ever felt particularly satisfied or content to do anything perhaps not so interesting earlier in life. I never really sort of warmed to like, you know, school or whatever. I, I was very happy at university, sort of like just doing my own little thing, writing essays and stuff. So I think I was always destined to end up doing something on my own. At the moment, I have a fantastic balance because I get to meet lots and lots of people for work and I get to meet all sorts of different interesting people across different organizations. But again, it's just me. I've always been fairly happy on my own. Just uh, Free spirit. Yeah, <laughs> e e exactly. I think maybe perhaps that, you know, that comes. You know, I never had too many friends in school, so I'm, I've always just been happy on my own, just doing my own little thing and sort of. I think also when you're building something creative and you're trying to make creative work happen, it's a good thing to be able to sort of be content in just being by yourself and, you know, not really caring too much what other people think of you. Because if you're trying to do something different with your work, if you're trying to make, I work as a journalist, but I also do my own sort of creative photography, which is published. Mm. And that's what mostly gets recognition. So that's what makes sets my work out. And if you are sort of the kind of person that always wants to be sort of part of a group, part of, you know, never wants to like raise your head above the parapet and do something a bit different, then you'll never be able to accomplish that kind of stuff. It sounds like you had a personality or perhaps spirit built for freelance, independent conflict journalism from a very early age. So maybe there's something, to, there's something in there as well, mate. The first issue you wanted to discuss here was an anxiety you felt or you said you felt about certain things you might have to do in order to get a story or to finish one. So can you go into a bit more detail here? Are these things that you know might put you in danger or perhaps are particularly dangerous men you might be interviewing or is it something else? I think there's, well, there's, it's, a, it's a very weird profession because there's two sort of anxieties. One is the immediate sort of like, what the fuck am I doing here? Anxiety. <laughs> Hang on, you're sitting awake at like one in the morning, like why have I planned to go down that road tomorrow with these guys that would like... <laughs> fucking kill me and take everything in my like bag just for the hell of it there's that kind of anxiety which is you know that can be like i i i've spent like quite a lot of time embedded with like military forces in congo and there's a real knowledge that if anything happens here this is not like the stories i've grown up on and like people you know writing books from iraq or afghanistan or whatever you are not with professional forces who are going to take care of you if something happens if you happen to get shot or injured in any way car accident while you're out on a story in Congo, it's very unlikely you'd get professional help of any kind. You know, me and my colleague Sifa, who's a local reporter I work with quite a lot, we were doing this thing for National Geographic together. Me and her were like sitting on the back of a pickup truck full of Congolese army soldiers, driving to this like contested town, like bumping all over the place, holding on for dear life while these soldiers just sort of laugh at us, like, you know, these fucking idiots coming with us. And with the best will in the world, it's like if something happens now, none of these soldiers will have had know anything about first aid. I'm the only one with first aid kit. It's there's very risky stuff like this, or it's you know, what happens if we get detained? What happens if we get stuck somewhere? Like I've been on horrible rural roads and the car's broken down at like, you know, five PM and the lights setting in, it's like, Okay, like we're definitely gonna die tonight. <laughs> like, I think one of the most scary things that happened to me was I was covering an Ebola outbreak two, three years ago, three years ago now. And, you know, Ebola is a horrible disease, you know, 60% mortality rate if you catch it. 
and I was photographing Ebola treatment centers a lot. And this is where the people treating Ebola victims are wearing these full sort of space suits, these kind of like these hazmat, full yeah, hazmat yeah. suits with the masks, the face shields, the plastic aprons, you know, to ensure because Ebola is spread by body fluid. So you don't want any spit, vomit, other things of that nature. That's how you get infected. And one of my favorite photos to take on that was when health workers come out of the red zone where the infected patients are, they get sprayed down with chlorine water. And one of my favorite photos to get was a moment when they'd stretch their hands out and they'd almost look quite angelic and symbolic when they had their arms outstretched, like sort of almost like a crucifix shape to get all the disinfectant spray all over their aprons. And I loved that photo and I kept trying to get like the perfect one of these images. I kept getting a bit too close. And one time the water from one of these guys, the disinfectant water sprayed back on my face and I felt some land on my tongue and lips. I jumped right back. I get my little antibacterial spray, just like this little sort of thing from boots that I was carrying around with me and start spraying it all over my face and mouth. And I'm like, oh God. And then about two days later, I started feeling very, very sick. Like, you know, my sore throat, weak legs, and it was very strong illness. It felt a lot worse than sort of your average flu. And I was like, okay, this is it. I'm I'm done now. I've, I've overstepped it. And then I, I felt even more ill. I started, you know, throwing up and everything. And I was like, okay, this, okay, I was calling my mum, everything. Oh, God. They get a doctor to come to my friend's house where I'm staying. It turns out I have typhoid fever instead. And I've never been so happy. I, I wanted to hug the doctor. I was so happy. Like, yeah, this is, I was the happiest man that ever had typhoid because it meant I didn't have Ebola. And, you know, then I spent two weeks recovering from that and losing bits of my hair. It was awful. But yeah, so there's anxieties about getting your work done and like the actual field context you're working in, but then also, you know, business anxieties. People do not pay freelancers on time. You can be waiting six months, four months, three months for invoices to be paid. And, you know, that's your livelihood. No one goes into like freelance photojournalism to get rich. You're living pretty much commissions to commissions. So people don't really care about getting you paid on time. You know, this is not important stuff to complain about in the context of what else you're covering but it is important because that's what allows you to work that's what allows you to build your business so that's pretty awful and then there's also just like you know shoddy behavior from editors and people you know you, you are very aware that you're a fairly expendable commodity to people there's no reason for editors to view you because there's so many people who want to do this you know you can be just viewed as a sort of a disposable thing if you don't say yes to a job, there's you know, very little chance people will want to work around that for you. There's always someone else that can jump up and do it. So there's just like work stresses like that, which is, is awful to deal with. But again, not quite as uh, sort of urgent as the day-to-day physical stresses. Another thing that you found quite difficult in the past is being able to relate your work and vent perhaps any frustrations or difficulties you've had on a particular week. Because, you know, to put it quite simply, your older friends from back home and, and even family quite don't understand what you do and the magnitude of what you do and the scale of it as much as they'd probably try to because it's so abstract from their reality. How difficult yeah. is that for your mental health? I know you said you're someone who enjoys being on their own and stuff like that, but you still need that yeah, release course. valve well, of I think, that internal pressure, don't you? Again, sort of trying to relate what you're working on to sort of people. It also it sort of makes it clear just how tricky it is to try and make your photos land home and trying to get these stories from the other side of the world into people's like computers living rooms or whatever to try and get to understand what is happening and relate your work 
like that. But yeah, and then, you know, for instance, you know, you're, it's complicated because you can't really complain to your, your mum about this sort of work because you don't want people to worry about like what you're actually up to. <laughs> so I have a good few friends who are also photographers, but, you know, who are sort of keeping keep in touch. Again, sort of people working the exact same business and industry are probably the ones who are going to be able to relate to your stresses the best. It is like a very solitary profession and career. It's a, it's hard things to sort of try and relate to people and store like my work stories like I I'm <laughs> you know some of the things I've got to do for work and you know they're absolute insanity and honestly <laughs> some of them it could just sound like you're making them up really just like <laughs> it's fantastic it's fantastic to have like people that know the context to relate to and just kind of like laugh about this stuff and in Congo I have a, a few very good friends who are always down for a dinner and just to discuss what's happening and you know that's very beneficial and as a final question then mate let's reflect on this mental health journey so what has it taught you about yourself and if you could also go back and talk to the Hugh was feeling inspired by that exhibition of American soldiers acting fairly normal in conflict in Afghanistan or the Hugh who's giving a voice to these survivors of sexual abuse in the DRC or the Hugh, like you've said, just struggling to relate his pretty mad life to his loved ones. <laughs> what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Honestly, I think it's, it's little things. Actually, just the way you put it now, if I went back to myself like a few years ago, I would be just absolutely jaw dropped about how much I've done. And like, you know, it's always a good moment when I'm, fe- when I'm not feeling anxious and stressed about work to actually realize that, you know, like I've built this and I've done this and I've been published in all these places. And it, it, it makes me, I'm super happy. And it's, you know, I... Also, I'm in the position of knowing that, like, work-wise, living the dream. You know, there are people that, like, would gladly pay to do what I do, whereas I get paid terrible amounts to do it, which is, you know, absolutely fantastic. But, yeah, I am very proud. And when you're in those sort of lower moments where it's like, oh, I've not had any commissions come in for a while, there's an unfortunate tendency that you're only as good as your last publication. If you're doing too many humanitarian commissions, then you're not publishing, your name's not popping up too much it's a very fickle thing you know when you feel like you're being in the public eye and you feel like you're getting your work out there and that doesn't necessarily mean the same as like you're not working too much take a picture so when you're in those low moments of like not feeling like your work is being seen enough it's always good to remember just how far you've come and on that note hugh Kinsella cunningham thank you so much for coming on oh, this checking in podcast and talking to me mate no thank you very much it's been a pleasure Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. A big thank you to Hugh Kinsella Cunningham for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me all about the Democratic Republic of Congo and the work he does in that area. I'll put a link to where you can visit Hugh's website with all of his portfolio and follow him on social media in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and boost us with those algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or if you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>